wrap up our sermon series entitled Give Us This Mountain. And we began a few weeks ago really uh, talking about what has become the theme of our 21 days of prayer and fasting. We're now 14 days into our 21 days of prayer and fasting. Everybody's looking good and healthy and uh, we're all hanging in there and doing good, so I'm really proud of you. Uh, and I do want to encourage you, as you just saw, this Wednesday night will be our last Wednesday night of worship and prayer. And if you have a, a young person, 6th through 12th grade, uh, they are doing, our youth are doing a 6 p.m. huddle uh, before the prayer and the worship service, and we'd love for them to come out. they got a special treat and a surprise for the kids, just an opportunity to hang out and have some fun together. Uh, so that'll be this Wednesday night here at our ARAP campus. But we're uh, really excited about what God is doing. So Joshua chapter 14 has been our foundational scriptures, the story of Caleb, who is now 85 years old, 45 years earlier. Uh, Caleb uh, walked into the promised land, and God gave him a promise that he was going to give him a specific mountain as his inheritance. And so now, 45 years later, Caleb is standing before Joshua, and this is what he says. He says, Now therefore give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how that the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord has said. And from that verse, we kind of went into introducing what we call the seven mountains of influence, which is the mountain of religion, the mountain of family, the mountain of education, the mountain of government, the mountain of media, the mountain of arts, and the mountain of arts and entertainment, and the mountain of business. And we recognize that whoever controls those mountains really governs the world. Uh, you get to set the precedence for what happens when you control those mountains. And we begin to talk about how the two men, 45 years ago, 1975, both had similar visions from the Lord. They came together, and God gave them what we now call the seven mountains of influence and a spiritual strategy to begin to reclaim our nation for the glory of God. Because if we want to see godly change in America, it's not enough just to reclaim that religious mountain. I mean, it's awesome that the church is strong and we need to be growing and advancing and building the church and that mountain of religion, but we've got to reclaim those other mountains if we really want to change our world for the glory of God. Amen. Anybody with me this morning? That was weak. Anybody here with me this morning? Yes. Come on, let's everybody hear you today. So we talked about two ways to take them out. We said the first way is what we've been doing for the last 14 days is to create a climate, literally a spiritual atmosphere that is conducive for the kingdom of God to advance. And we said we do that through prayer, worship, and the word of God. Uh, that through those things, we change the climate, literally change the spiritual atmosphere. We control the crops, what grows there, and literally create a culture so that the kingdom of God can grow and move on every mountain. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, whatever we bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so we recognize that through our prayer, our worship, and the declaration of the word of God, we literally begin to bind and loose in the heavenly realms and create an atmosphere that allows the kingdom of God to advance and grow on each of those seven mountains. We also said the second way that we take the mountain is to personally ascend the mountain. That the higher someone ascends the mountain, the more influence they have upon that mountain. And this is why there's no such thing as sacred and secular work for the Christian. If you're born again, then everything is sacred, significant, and spiritual. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do or whatever you say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, everything about your life is sacred. You have now been set apart. You don't have a secular job, 
and a sacred work. You don't have a job that you work secularly so you can feed your family, and then you have religious activities that you do so you can serve God. No, if you're born again, everything about your life is sacred. Everything about your life is set apart for the glory of God. You are holy, set apart for God's glory, and your life is supposed to be lived as a representative of Jesus in everything that you do. Last week, we kind of dove into the idea that we are connected to every mountain, right? We recognize we're connected to every mountain. We may not ascend every mountain, but we have influence on every mountain, and our daily decisions influence every mountain. We are either advancing the kingdom of God or advancing the kingdom of darkness with every decision that we make. And we literally just said, well, I gave you a good definition of insanity last week. Insanity is praying for righteousness and then purchasing and watching movies that are unrighteous. Praying for righteousness on the government mountain and then not voting for righteousness when we have a chance to vote on that government mountain. It's insanity for me to pray for righteousness in the family mountain and then to reject or disengage from my responsibilities in the area of family. And so we understood something. We understood that my prayers now require a corresponding action. That what I'm praying for now requires me to actually begin to live my life in such a way that my actions correspond with my prayers. Because if not, I'm living a crazy life because I'm praying for one thing and doing something totally opposite. And unfortunately, we short-circuit the work of God through our prayers and intercession when we make decisions and choices that are counterproductive to the prayers that we're praying. Amen? So, how do we ascend our mountain? First, we said we have to identify our mountain, and the way we do that is through our gifts, our calling, and our passion. 2 Timothy chapter 1, the Bible tells us that we've been saved, we've been called with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to God's purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So we identify our gifts, our, our talents, our gifts, our calling, and our passion, and that clarifies the mountain that God has called us to climb. We also recognize that Satan tries to deceive us. This is huge. He tries to deceive us into despising our gifts. The moment you begin to want to do what somebody else does and you begin to despise the gift that God has given you, the moment you despise your gift, you're going to confuse your calling and you're going to pervert your passion. And you're going to start pursuing things you're not called to pursue. Can anybody say American Idol? Yeah. Pursuing things you're not called to pursue. There's a lot of people... Pursuing things they're not called to do. Why? Because if you despise your gift, you'll confuse your calling and you'll pervert your passion and you'll spend your entire life trying to climb a mountain that you're not called to climb. And we made this statement last week. We said that one of the lies that we tell ourselves is that I can grow up and do anything I want to do. And we said that's not true. You can't grow up and do anything. But you can grow up and do everything God has called you to do. You can't do anything, American Idol, come on. You can't do anything you want to do, but you can do everything that God has called you to do because if God has called you, then He has gifted you and He has given you the grace to climb the mountain He's called you to climb and to be the person He's called you to be. And let me just say this to you today. The best person you can be is the person God's called you to be. That's where you're going to have the most fun. I'm just telling you right now. That's where your life is going to excel. So, Satan tries to confuse us. So today I want to talk a little bit about why. I want to answer the question, why? So look at that next point. So why should we fight for 
these mountains? Why should we fight for these mountains? I mean, come on, Pastor Keith, can't we just love God, right? Can't we just love God? Can't we just love our families? Can't we just live our lives and hope that everything works out? I mean, we are already busy enough, right? I mean, come on, I know a lot of people, I can hear people's thoughts sometimes, and they're like, Pastor Keith, you know, I come to church every Sunday, and you're supposed to take a load off of me, and it seems like every Sunday I come, and you challenge me to do more. Right? You just challenge me to do more. You're challenging me not to live a godly life and take care of my family and work hard my job. Now you're telling me i got to be fighting for these mountains and I ain't never even thought about these seven mountains before. Now i got to fight for these mountains and I'm supposed to be fasting and praying and worshiping and declaring the word of God. Come on, Pastor Keith. Can't we just live our lives? Can't we just love God, love our family, go to work every day and hope that everything's going to work out? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, isn't God going to do what God's going to do? And what I do really doesn't matter anyway. I'm just a little speck, a little peon in the midst of this big old picture that God's playing out. Can't I just love God, love people, go to work and let, let everything happen the way it's going to happen anyway? Well, let me ask you that question. No, you can't. <laughs> Look at that next point. The answer to that question is No. No, you cannot. No, you cannot just love God, love your family, go to work, and hope that everything works out. Let me tell you why. The reason why you can't do that is because one of the greatest mysteries of Christianity, we're going to, we're going to dive into something, I'm going to give you something to think about today. One of the greatest mysteries of Christianity is that we have a part to play in God's story. So, so let me just pause there for a second. One of the greatest mysteries of Christianity is that you have the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And so you got God that is large and in charge, right? He is super sovereign. I mean, God is large and God is in charge. But in God's sovereignty, I want you to hear this. In God's sovereignty, he gave us a free will. Now, here's what's awesome. Here's the mystery. God's sovereignty never violates our will. And our will never violates God's sovereignty. That's the mystery of Christianity. God's sovereignty never violates my will. I get to choose. And my will never violates God's sovereignty because at the end of the day, God's going to have the last word. But we have a part. I want you to see this. Here's the reason why you just can't kick it in neutral or cruise control and just live your little old life and do your little thing. Here's the reason we got to fight because you play a part. You play a part in God's story. Look at that next part. We are not puppets on a stage. We are not puppets on the stage. We are laborers together. And the Holy Spirit said, Keith, he said, literally every person on planet Earth is an architect in God's story. We get to build the landscape of our lives. We get to write the narrative of our story. It is amazing when you think about what God has invited us into. We're not puppets, and I can prove it. Have you ever known in your heart that God wanted you to do something? You ever just knew that you knew that you knew this is something God wanted me to do? You ever had those little moments? You've had more than one, I'm sure. Well, have you ever had one of those moments where you knew that you knew that you knew God wanted you to do something and then you didn't do it? You know why? You're not a puppet. You're not a puppet. God's not up in heaven pulling all the strings on your life. You serve a sovereign God who in his sovereignty gave you a free will. And his sovereignty never violates your will. And your will never violates his sovereignty. That's the mystery of Christianity. That's how big God is. He's pretty awesome if you think about that. You're not a puppet. You are an architect. You are building out the story of your own life. We, and here's what's amazing. Not only are you building the story of your life, you're building out God's story every day of your life. 
That's why you just can't kick in cruise control. That's why you just can't take care of me and my home and let the rest of the world do what the rest of the world does because it really don't matter to me anyway. Yes, it does. You are vital to the story. You are vital to the story. And what happens is, is that we, we look back on history and we think of all the prominent figures, right? I mean, there are some definitely prominent. Let's think of this America. Let's think about George Washington for just a minute. Man, that's pretty. Thomas Edison, some pretty prominent figures. And then you can think about in history, you can think about Hitler and Stalin. You can think about some other prominent figures that came through the pages of history. You can even think about, if you're like me and you're preaching, you can think about somebody like Billy Graham, right? And you think about, man, how that man changed the world. But what you don't understand is a lot of times we look at those people and we say, well, these are some special people. You know, God chose this person, that person, Billy Graham. We'll just take him. God just chose Billy Graham. He was just special and unique. And God chose him to change the world. He changed the world. It's amazing. It's awesome. Thank God for Billy Graham. But what you don't understand is that there were hundreds, maybe even thousands of other stories that connected to his story that made his story what his story is because if you remove all the other people's story from Billy Graham's story, Billy Graham don't have a story. Mordecai Ham, right? All you guys know who that is. Y'all were talking about it this week on the dinner table. I'm sure sitting around the table, y'all said, man, you know, I was thinking about Mordecai Ham the other day. <laughs> he fills all the history pages in America. You know who Mordecai Ham is? Mordecai Ham is the guy that led Billy Graham to Jesus. Nobody's talking about Mordecai Ham, but he was the evangelist that preached the gospel the night that Billy Graham got saved. And if I heard an uh, update on that this week, somebody said that the night Billy Graham got saved, he was the only person in that entire congregation that night that got saved. One soul got saved that night. His name was Billy Graham. Wow. And Mordecai Ham was the guy that preached the gospel. You've never even heard his name unless you've heard me say it before. But Billy Graham wouldn't be Billy Graham without Mordecai Ham. Why? Because every person is an architect of the story that makes up God's story that forms our lives. And it's amazing. You can't just check out, guys. You can't live on cruise control. You can't let the world go to hell and forget about them because that world is your world and you're writing the story. So let me tell you why this is true. Look at Psalms chapter 8. David is writing, he says, when I look at the night sky and see the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place. David said, when I consider all the world, God, that you've made, it's amazing. He says, but what are mere mortals that you should think about them? And human beings that you should care for them. Now look at verse 5, this is huge. He says, yet you made them only a little lower than God. Now the King James uses the word angel instead of God, but it's the word in the Hebrew Elohim, which is interpreted every time in Scripture as God, except for the King James used angels because they felt like it was sacrilegious to call to say God, that we were made a little lower than God. But if you go back and read the creation story, how many know we were made a little lower than God? We were made in the image and likeness of God. You're not God, but you're made to be like God. And the angels are actually ministers sent forth to minister to the heirs of salvation. So the angels work for you, Amen. and you work for God. Pretty cool. Amen. And the Bible says we were made a little lower than God, not God, but to be like God, creating the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, the Bible tells us that. And it says, and you crowned them with glory and honor. Look at verse 6. And you gave them humanity. You gave human beings charge of everything you made and put all things under their authority. God gave man authority. Think about this over everything that he made. We're not puppets. We are participants in God's story. 
You have been given dominion and authority over all that God made. God created the heavens and the earth, and then he gave me and you charge. Hear this. Charge over this earth to establish his kingdom. We're going to talk about government in just a few minutes. Let me just go ahead and tell you this up front. God's not a Republican and God's not a Democrat. God does not take sides. God takes over. And he has one agenda, and it is the kingdom of God. And if America doesn't support his kingdom, then America is no longer necessary. God has one agenda, the kingdom of God. That's it. The ultimate agenda. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God's ultimate plan is that one day all things will come under the authority of Christ. And then Jesus, the Son, will lay everything at the feet of the Father. One agenda. So let's do something today. This whole uh, series we've been talking about Caleb. He's kind of been the hero of our story. So I want to go back and get a little backdrop on Caleb's story. We're going to look at Numbers chapter 13. And what I want us to do is I want us to look at, at Caleb's story, but it's not just Caleb's story. It's the story of the nation of Israel, the children of Israel. And I want you to see something. I want you to see how that their decisions shape the story of an entire nation. Their nation was shaped by the decisions and the choices that they, as a people, made. So, Numbers 13, they're sent, God's just sent 12 spies to spy out the promised land. And the Bible says, verse 25, at the end of 40 days they returned from exploring the land. Verse 26, they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh. And they reported to them to the whole assembly, showing them the fruit of the land. If you remember the story, they brought back one cluster of grapes that was so big, the Bible says, they had to put it on a pole and told it between the shoulders of two men. I'm talking about, that is some good grape jelly. Come on, somebody. <laughs> big grapes. One grape makes a whole jar of jelly. It's amazing. Huge, huge, huge. Amazing fruit. Verse 27. It says, and they gave Moses this account. So listen, listen to the report that they gave about the land. We went to the land that you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey, and here is its fruit. I want you to see something. They basically just said everything that God promised was true. Everything that God said about this promised land was 100% accurate. God said it was a land that flows with milk and honey. It was a land that was full of provision and protection. He is exactly right. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. And here's these big old grapes. It is amazing. It's everything that God said it would be. And I want you to understand today, every promise that God has made for you is 100% accurate and true. Everything that God has said will come to pass. And he is faithful to his word. God doesn't play bait and switch. He's not promising us something and then when we get there say, whoo, fooled you. Just kidding. Here's consolation prize. Everything that God promises is true. And they just declare that. Everything that is true. But look at verse 28 because there's a great big unholy but right there. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amorites lived there. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites. They all lived there. All the Ites lived together. Right? One big old colony here. All the Ites. Verse 30. And then Caleb silenced the people and said, 
We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. We can take it. Caleb said, hey, 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 shut up, everybody. Listen, listen, listen. Let's go right now and take the land. We can do what God said we could do. Look at the next verse. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can. We can't attack those people that are stronger than we are. And they spread, look at this, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land. This is the first account in history of fake news. <laughs> and they spread a bad report. What, true? The truth was it was everything God said it was. The truth was, God had already promised it to them. The truth was, the grapes were this big. It took two guys to tow them back. The truth was, everything God said was true. But they spread a bad report. Fake news began to filter through the nation of Israel. They said, the land we explored devours those who are living in it. And all the people we saw there are of great size. And we saw the Nephilim there who come from Anak. And we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we look the same to them. Look at the next verse. And that night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. And all Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said, if only, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. How tragic. Think about what just happened. How tragic, how sad, how tragic it is that when it came time, when it came time for them to fight for their promised land, they wanted to retreat and return to bondage. When it came time for them to fight, what, fight for what God had promised them, they said, hey, let's just go back. Wouldn't it be easier if we just went back to Egypt? I know we were slaves. I know we lived in bondage. But at least we got something to eat every day. At least we didn't, we didn't even have to think about what we were going to do because we just got up every day and they told us what to do. Kind of sounds like socialism. And it's really crazy. <laughs> yeah. I just know they're going to take care of me. Wouldn't it be better? Let's just go back to bondage. Let's just go back to bondage. As Americans, we enjoy some amazing privileges and liberties, and it is so amazing. It is, it is so, really, it's tragic. How many Americans enjoy our privileges, but yet how few Americans are willing to fight to maintain those same privileges Amen. and pass them on to the next generation? And when I say fight, I'm not talking about taking up arms. We may have to do that one day. But what I'm really talking about is spiritually warring for these mountains. Standing up, speaking up, engaging physically, financially, and spiritually in the battlefield and declaring, hey, God, give us these mountains. We're going to fight for the promised land, God. Now, I don't know if you've ever been outside America. This is the promised land. Just take a mission trip. You'll be glad to come home. Amen. This is a place of promise that God has given to us for the purpose of advancing His kingdom, not our American agenda. Amen. 
Verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell down in front of the whole Israelite community. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, were, were among those who had explored the land. They tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, listen to this, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Look at verse 9. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid. I want you to hear the challenge. Do not rebel and do not be afraid. Why? Because fear and rebellion, hear me, fear and rebellion rob us of the promises of God. Think about your own personal life. Think about how many times of your life, in your life have you been on your spiritual journey and you were pursuing the promise that God had for you. And all of a sudden you came to a place that was unknown. And then somebody said, well, you can't do that. And somebody else said, well, that's impossible. And then you thought, well, nobody in my family has ever done this before. And then you thought, well, I'm not sure if I can do this anyway. God, are you really, are you really sure I'm the person you're supposed to be doing this? And then fear came. And you begin to become fearful and afraid. You begin to doubt the promise of God, the provision of God, the ability of God to take you into the place he called you to. And you became afraid. And guess what fear always does? Fear breeds rebellion. Fear causes you to flee. Faith causes you to fight. And how many times have we rebelled against what we knew God was calling us to do? Just because we were afraid of what are they going to think? Is it really going to work? Can I even do this? How many times have we missed the promise? Because fear brought rebellion that caused us to flee from the promised land instead of fight for the promise that God had for us. But look at the next verse. But the whole assembly talked of stoning them. And then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And verse 28 of Numbers 14 is God's response to now what they've done. I want you to see this. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, that I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. I want you to hear what God just said. God just gave us some clarity. He said, he said Moses, I want you to tell the children of Israel that I'm going to do to them the very thing they said that was going to be done. They're going to die in the wilderness. Their children are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until everybody 20 years old and up dies. They're going to die in the wilderness. They're not going to possess the promise. They're not going to enter the land. And they're going to miss out on what I have for them. But I want you to hear what God says. God says, tell them this is what I'm going to do. Now, I want you to see why that's important. It's important because that tells us something. What God is right now about to do is not what he wanted to do. They just rewrote the story. God intended that they possess the land. God intended that they enter into the land. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness was not the plan of God. It was not the will of God. It was not the purpose of God. It was the result of their rebellion. Hear that. They rewrote the story. They built the future that they were about to live in for the next 40 years. 
God says, I'm about to do something. This ain't what I wanted to do. I'm about to do something. This is not what I planned to do. I'm about to do something. This is not my will for them. But it is the result of the story that they wrote. So read the rest of this. I'm going to hit the highlights here. You can follow along with me. He says, your wildernesses, in the wilderness, your bodies will fall. Everyone 20 years old and older will die because they grumbled against you. No one will enter the land, he says, except for Caleb and Joshua. Verse 31, he said, And the children that you said will be taken plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you've rejected. But verse, but as for you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness. Look at verse 33. And your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness. He says, ultimately, I'm going to take your kids in the promised land. The same kids you said that were going to die in the wilderness, they're going to possess the promise, but they're going to have to suffer for 40 years. Because you were unfaithful to me. And no one will enter the land except for Caleb and Joshua. Verse 34, he says, And for 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explore the land, you will suffer for your sins. Verse 35, I will surely do these things, says the Lord, for those who banded together against you. Verse 37, those men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of the plague before the Lord. And the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Joshua, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, survived. So look at that next point. I want you to see this. God has written the end of the story. God's written the end of the story. He's already planned specific events that will happen, and we can't change those things, right? Hey, if you've read the back of the book, God wins. God's written the end of the story. And God has also written specific events and things that are going to happen leading up to the end of the story. And we can't change any of those. Those are the sovereign acts of God that no decision you make or I make can ever change what God has already said is going to happen. But this is what you've got to see. Listen to the rest of that statement. Even though we can't change those things, we do get to shape the story. We get to shape. There's a lot of narrative in between those events. There's a lot of narrative between now and the end of time. There's a lot of narrative before everything that God says has happened will happen. And we get to write that part of the story. Our prayers, our praise, our declarations, and our decisions shape the story of our lives and create the story that our children will walk into. Think about that. Our decisions, our prayers, our prayer, our prayer, our prayers, our praise, and our declarations and our decisions shape the story. It shapes the story of life that we're going to live in, and it shapes the story of life that our kids are going to walk into. Everybody 20 years old and younger of that generation of the nation of Israel had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years as shepherds. This November, guys, we're going to have a vote. And I don't think it's going to shape the next four years. It'll probably shape the next 40 years. Amen. And the pivotal significance of what we're going to do this fall is going to impact this nation. And again, God's not Republican and he is not Democrat. God does not take sides. God takes over. God does not have an American agenda. He has a kingdom agenda. And as long as we serve God's agenda, we are vocal, vibrant, and necessary. We are essential only then. Yes. And we have an opportunity 
not to vote for a person, but to vote for the values that are going to honor the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if we don't fight for our city, our state, and our nation, we're going to create a future that we're going to live in. But most importantly, and here's the realization, this is a good little mixed crowd. And some of you are old enough, you may not see the impact. But your children will. And your children's children will. You and I literally today are shaping our story and we're shaping the story that our kids are going to step into. Look at that next point. I want you to see this last point together. So why fight? Why fight for these mountains? Because every generation is blessed or cursed by the generation that precedes it. Every generation is blessed or cursed by the generation that precedes it. And I can prove it to you. I'm going to make it really personal. How many of you understand today that your mom and dad's decisions affected you? You were either blessed or you were cursed by the choices and decisions that your mom and dad made. That's about as close to home as we can get, guys. Every person in this room knows that. Your mom and dad's decision, one generation ahead of you, either blessed or cursed you. It either positions you to prosper and succeed, or it, it positions you in a place where you are already at a deficit before you ever even got started. What is true of our families is also true of our nation. We say that again. What is true of our families is also true of our nation. Every generation is either releasing a blessing or a curse to the generation that comes behind you. And that next little statement is huge because the compromise of one generation becomes the captivity of the next. The compromise of one generation, when we compromise our integrity, when we compromise righteousness, when we compromise morality, when we compromise what it means just to love God and love people, when we compromise the standards of God, guess what happens? Our compromise today creates captivity tomorrow. Of all the people that I've talked with that have battled with addiction and recovery, very rarely do you find someone that wasn't introduced to addiction from a family member. Very rarely. And what's crazy his dad had a little Friday night drinking problem. But his son is a full-blown alcoholic. What's crazy is dad made a mismanaged money and son lived his whole life broke, busted, and disgusted because he never learned how to succeed. What's sad is mom and dad fought all the time and son and daughter grew up being divorced multiple times because of violence and abuse in their home. The compromise of one generation becomes the captivity of the next generation. So why fight? We fight. Here it is, guys. Final word. If we refuse to fight, it is our children that suffer. And we're fighting. We're fighting for a generation. We're fighting for the story of our life, but we're also fighting for the story of our kids and our grandkids. 
And if you're here today and you're a young person, you're thinking, Pastor Keith, I ain't had my kids and grandkids. I just want to get out of high school and try to figure out how I'm going to do this virtual learning stuff. Right? <laughs> Even as a young person, your decisions are shaping your life right. And one day, your decisions at 13 and 16 and 18 are going to shape the life of your children when they're 13 and 16. And this thing's huge. That's why, guys. We can't check out. We can't hit the cruise control and just say, I'm just going to live my life and do my own thing and take care of my own and I'll let the world do what the world does know. We are a part of the story. We're builders, architects. And even though God drove me into the story, nothing we can do can change that. We get to fill in the narrative. Are we going to get there in one generation? Or is a generation going to have to suffer 40 years of captivity before we come out on the other side? That's our decision. And I believe with all my heart, I believe that prayer, worship, and the Word of God are the keys. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Won't you just bow your heads with me today? Every head bowed, every eye closed just to remove all the distractions. If you're watching online, I want you just to focus in on what's being said right now. Maybe you're here this morning you realize, Pastor Keith, I've, I've never made that, that main decision that you've kind of been talking around. You've been talking about as Christians we do this, and as Christians we do that, and as Christians we make decisions and choices that shape our world, but I, I, I realize this morning I'm not a Christian. And I'm kind of on the outside of this thing looking in, and, and I realize this morning that more than I need anything, I need Jesus. If that's you today and you want to be born again, that's what the Bible calls it, born again. And let me tell you why being born again is so amazing. Because being born again is not just about you getting to go to heaven and live with God. It's about the God of heaven coming to earth to live in you. So he can empower you. So his kingdom can come and his will can be done on earth in your life as it is in heaven. And unless you're born again, that will never happen. You can know about God, but until you know Him, nothing changes. So if you're here today and you say, Pastor Keith, I want to be born again. I want to know God as my personal Lord and Savior. I realize I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is the Savior. And I want to commit my life to follow Him all the days of my life. If that's you right now, I just want you just to raise your hand. Just a simple act of faith. Today I want to be born again. If you're watching online, you can reach out to one of our prayer counselors. There may even be a little tab there you can click on to raise your hand to pray that prayer today. But if you're here this morning, you say, Pastor Keith, I want to be born again. And this is your moment. This is your moment. Because if you don't know that you know that you know that heaven is your home, and how do you know you're going to go to heaven? You know you're going to go to heaven because the God of heaven comes and lives in you on earth. I know I'm going to heaven because God has come to earth and he lives in me. I've been born again. That's our guarantee. 
It's not a prayer that we pray. It's not religious activity that we do. Our guarantee that we're going to heaven is that the God of heaven has come to live in us. And if that's never happened and you want him to do that today, just raise your hand. We're about to pray. Just raise your hand. So we're going to pray right now. Let's just say this together out loud. All of you, if you will, join me. Dear Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me and save me. Come into my heart and my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. I commit my whole life to you. And I receive today the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name.